News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. A large number of the calls that we're going to are seniors that live alone. And uh, our officers are finding that when they are entering uh, the buildings, the, the rooms that they're living in are in the 40 degree temperature level. We've never seen anything like this and we're pleading with anybody who has an elderly family member, a vulnerable neighbour, please give them a call, check in on them uh, to make sure that they're okay. All right, just a couple of voices. Yesterday, we were hearing from about the heat wave, what first responders were experiencing when they were called out to those emergency calls. That last voice was Vancouver Police Sergeant Steve Addison talking about the number of calls and the number of sudden deaths. And we heard later in the day from the coroner service saying for a period from Friday, June 25th to Monday, June 28th, at least 233 deaths were reported. And it's believed many of those cases are linked to the extreme heat that we've been seeing in this province. Let's bring in Raji Sohal, Mornings with Simi contributor, to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, Jill. I mean, we've known that uh, obviously the heat wave is a dangerous situation, but it wasn't until the numbers of the deaths were announced yesterday that it really hit home. I just I was driving when I first heard the numbers and I, I was shocked. I think a lot of people were, and Gord uh, McDonald touched on this too, and huge thank yous go out to the different police departments, RCMP and civic forces as well, for putting those numbers out there, because people didn't know. I mean, we'd, we'd heard that paramedics were being run off their feet more than usual. We'd heard that there was an increase in calls that people were calling 911, but we didn't know the extent to, to which people were dying, people were passing away, and a lot of those cases, again, linked to that extreme heat. Yeah, and it was extremely disturbing to also hear our politicians uh, skirt around the deaths um, to minimize them in any way. That the the number, the sheer number, two hundred thirty-three sudden deaths, is extremely disturbing. And to think that people were, as you put it, dying in their homes is just so it's so awfully sad. And that we didn't have enough ambulances. And a lot of people have pointed out, oh, well, it was the elderly and the elderly are, are so vulnerable that it, it doesn't take much. It, it, that kind of insensitive um, approach to it is it's it, it blows my mind because our system was already, as we all know, extremely overburdened. We haven't had enough ambulances for what feels like a very long time now. But also there were a lot of people um that have been out there overexerting themselves and they have overburdened the system. And these are people who are not necessarily elderly at all. I've been talking to some nurse friends uh, at VGH as well as at um, Lionsgate in North End who told me they're seeing a lot of young people coming in who didn't know that they had heat exhaustion, who didn't know that they might be suffering from something close to heat stroke. They found themselves dizzy, confused after they had been doing things like playing tennis in, you know, high 30s. So those people have been overburdening the system and pulling resources. I've also talked to a friend who's a, a fireman who told me that never has he seen anything like this and that they're not mentally, let alone resource wise, prepared to step in where ambulances should be stepping in. 
you mentioned uh, some of the response from politicians. Uh, so this was the premier, and I think most people have heard of this. He did walk it back a bit on Twitter after. This was the premier at the reopening, at the step three reopening announcement yesterday, because of course he was asked about this, asked about the extreme heat. And it was a basic question. It was an anticipated question. Should health officials, should, should our leaders have done more to warn people about this extreme heat? Fatalities are part of life. The public was acutely aware that we had a heat problem uh, and we were doing our best to break through all of the other noise to encourage people to take steps to protect themselves. And as you mentioned, Raji, and people have been talking about that, uh, that was not the response that people were looking for. Not the response people were looking for. I mean, inadequate isn't even the word. That was so insensitive. I can't believe when I heard that. I couldn't believe it was, uh, you know, supposed to be our leaders, the person who is guiding us through these kinds of things, who should be showing leadership, is not. Um, To say that deaths, I mean, it sounded like he was saying that the deaths due to the heat wave were somehow less significant than you know, other deaths that we've been discussing, for example, COVID-related deaths. But right now, we we have just gone through, I think, a crisis with our heat wave. We're seeing unprecedented numbers of people dying from the heat wave. Like, this needed to have taken their, their number one slot for the last several days of action, and we just did not see an action plan. I do appreciate that he went on Twitter after the fact and 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 tried to take some steps back there to realize what they have done wrong. But um, you know what? It's not enough. The province has been asking citizens, residents, to be constantly flexible, constantly pivot over the last year and a half. Why haven't they? Why have they not spent the last three days throwing all their resources and time into solving this? 233 sudden deaths is not acceptable. Uh, and, and yeah, and I mean, I, and I'm not uh, at all backing it up or or making an excuse. But I mean, what he was basically saying, I think, was everybody dies at some point. That's true. But that, again, is not the response. Imagine if it was one of his loved ones, one of his family members, and the response was, suck it up. Fatalities are a part of life. So... Yes, there was a lot of criticism, and rightly so in that case. Uh, we also heard yesterday from Terry Lake, who is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. We've been talking to Terry Lake throughout this pandemic, and he talked about what we can learn from the response, or I suppose lack of response, to the heat wave. This is really, uh, although it wasn't called a public health emergency, it really is uh, the third public health emergency on top of COVID and the opioid overdose crisis. Um, but we knew this was coming. We, we could have been, I think, better prepared, uh, but we should, as we always should, learn from this and start to dedicate resources to making sure that the most vulnerable in our society, those elderly among us uh, are well cared for. And with climate change occurring, that means we need to be thinking about building design, uh, ventilation and air conditioning, even in areas where we traditionally have not had to worry about that. Uh, again, that's Terry Lake, BC Care Providers CEO. He made a point as well, Raji, which I thought was interesting, saying that in the interior, where the high temperatures are more anticipated, people deal with them, there ha- there are more places with air conditioning. So even though the, the temperatures were soaring and breaking records, the situation wasn't quite as dire. But again, saying we need to learn from this. Sure, we do need to learn from this. And I hope that this was a lesson to our government that we are going to do that. But also, I think 
you know, we say that in a time like this, we say, okay, yeah, we've got to learn from this. And then what action is taken after that? Often none. I think that we also with COVID needed to have spent more time at the beginning, more resources at the beginning going, how are we going to protect our most vulnerable? And they just got grouped in with everybody else. But there should have been more attention and resources to helping the elderly then too. So maybe in general, that's something that we need to be doing, paying more attention to what the needs are of the elderly. Um, You mentioned this point off the top of the show that after we heard the numbers, people started to take it really seriously and really look for signs of heat exhaustion and actually pick up the phone and call the elderly that are in their lives, checking in on neighbors. And that was me. And whereas I was doing that a little bit before, um, once I heard the number of deaths, I took it very seriously. And I would have preferred that instead of that coming from first responders, that kind of a message, that it would come from the leadership of our province and that they would have been more transparent about the numbers, about the seriousness of this and the dangerous um, elements of the heat wave just right off the bat from the beginning. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, as you know, BC is officially moving to phase three of the province's restart tomorrow. Things such as masks will no longer be mandatory in public settings. They will be recommended. There will be more social contact, people meeting, socializing with people outside of their households. More people will be able to gather both indoors and outdoors. But what does this mean as we move forward and try and put the pandemic behind? Well, joining me now is Andre Picard, Globe and Mail Health columnist. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. One of the lines, and you've written a column on this, people can see it in the Globe and Mail. Uh, One of the lines I think that really sticks out to me is the future of the pandemic will be determined largely by our levels of patience or impatience. I think that sums it up very well. Yeah, we have to be patient. Uh, the Things are looking really good. The doors are flying wide open in BC, so we have a lot more freedom. But there's still this Delta variant hanging over our heads. Uh, it could get worse. Uh, we know that one in three adults still have no vaccine. So there's still a lot of issues out there. So we have to be careful. We have to be ready for little flare-ups. You reference as well what's been happening in some other countries that are ahead of Canada and the provinces when it comes to reopening. What do you think we need to be looking at most, mostly when we look at other countries? I think if we look, say, a country like Israel, which has got a lot of attention for being good at vaccination, lifting all its measures early, they've just brought back masking. So I think we could see that if we see a surge, say, in the Delta variant, um, we may be asked to start wearing our masks again more commonly. So I think things like that we have to be ready for. We have to be willing to adjust. And gatherings as well. It's not just uh, throw the doors open, as you mentioned, too. It's still got to be people like people have different risk levels that they're comfortable with and people kind of following along what they're okay with welcoming back. Yeah, we do all have individual uh, levels of risk tolerance. So uh, some people are going to be wearing masks, even in settings where it's not uh, mandatory anymore. And I think we have to accept that and we have to be careful. Don't shame them or make fun of them. People have to find their comfort zones. One of the hardest things, I think, at this point in the pandemic is going to figure out uh, how to have these awkward conversations. Uh, Did you get your vaccine? Uh, You know, are your kids vaccinated? Things like that are going to be difficult socially.
What about the vaccine rates? I know you referenced that as well, that we're getting to some pretty good numbers when it comes to vaccinations. You talk about children as well. People under the age of 12 aren't vaccinated. What are your thoughts on where Canada stands there? Well, Canada is really uh, shown on vaccination. Actually, we have one of the best rates in the world. We're up to uh, 67% of adults now have at least one dose. Uh, we're up to 30% two doses. Uh, I don't think there's any other country in the world that's done this well, but we have to keep up that momentum. And to me, as you mentioned, what I was writing in the paper is we have to reward people for vaccination. That's why you have to lift some of these rules. You have to say, yeah, it was hard. Uh, you did say, you know, you did something that was difficult, and now here's the reward for getting vaccinated. And do you think it's going to be an issue with children not being vaccinated at this point? Well, we're not going to see uh, studies on vaccination in children until at least the fall, so we have to accept that. Uh, that that's not going to happen. Uh, if we're lucky, it'll happen when school returns, or so to be a vaccine campaign when school goes back in September. But in the meantime, we have to recognize that children don't get as sick if they get the, the virus, but they can get sick. So be cautious, you know, don't have, uh, uh, maybe still have masking at, at children's parties, uh, especially if there's a whole bunch of different households getting together. Uh, just be aware. Uh, if kids are sick, I think that's one of the most important things. Get them tested. Uh, you know, you can still get tested for COVID. And that's a way of stopping the spread. But don't, uh, you know, I, I quoted someone in my column saying, yeah, hug your grandchildren. The rules aren't really clear on that. But you got your vaccine, you got your two shots, hug your grandchildren. That's, that's the point where we're at. Uh, you also talk about the Public Health Agency of Canada and the guidelines that have now been put out when it comes to fully vaccinated people, what they can do. I know travel is top of mind for a lot of people as well. Do you think the guidelines are clear enough as far as letting people know what is safe? I think the guidelines are good in that they give us a sense of what do you do if you're interacting uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated people. So the guidelines there are practical. The big criticism of the federal guidelines is it says nothing about children. But I think, you know, what I just said is pretty well sums up what people feel is we're going to just behave normally around children with, with very few exceptions if we're worried about uh, their cough or something. So I, I think they have to flesh out the guidelines a bit because people aren't sure how to act with kids. Uh, what do you do with a family that uh, two adults and, uh, and one older teen is vaccinated and two younger kids aren't? How do, how do you cope with that? We're, we're going to have to figure that stuff out. Uh, and talking a bit more about masks as well, in BC, as of tomorrow, they go from being mandatory in a lot of places to being recommended. That includes places like transit and others where you might be closer to people than you want to be. There's also no proof. Like you said, it's kind of that awkward uh, position that people are in because it's it's there's no proof that the person beside you, whether they're wearing a mask or not, you don't know if they've been vaccinated. Do you think that's going to be a bit of a, a learning point or what happens in those scenarios? I, I think there's going to be some tensions we're going to see. I think one of the, the paradoxes is that uh, people who are least likely to wear masks are also least likely to get vaccinated. So I think there's going to be a lot of caution with uh, maskless people. I think a lot of people will still wear masks on, on public transit, for example. And, and I think we should at this point. I think we should be cautious, especially with the variant circulating. A lot of private businesses will, I think, obviously keep the mask mandate in, in place for a while to be safe. So I, I, we're going to get this mixing and, and we're going to have to, again, figure that out. But I think uh, the one you mentioned, public transit, etc., that's going to be one of the hard ones.
And just one other question, and you talk about this in the column as well, how the provinces have had different approaches and obviously different numbers and dealing with different case counts, but comparing Alberta is opening up and comparing, say, to Ontario and here in BC, what are your thoughts on how we're seeing such different approaches? Well, we've seen that all along. I think it's sort of perplexing for the public. It sends mixed messaging. But uh, I think the different provinces have just handled it differently. I think BC has done really well with its messaging, for example. It's been really clear since day one. Uh, It hasn't had the toughest rules, but it's been clear in in asking people to take responsibility, etc. Ontario has kind of been a mess politically, so they're much more cautious. They're, They're worried about the political fallout. So there's kind of explanations for this. But everybody's heading in the same direction. The the message that's being delivered is the more we're vaccinated, the more freedom we have. All right. We will leave it there. Andre Picard, thank you so much for taking some time and joining us this morning. Thank you. Andre Picard is the Globe and Mail health columnist. Again, you can read his latest column there. What are your thoughts on this? We've been asking the question today, when we head officially into step three of the reopening that starts tomorrow, what are you most looking forward to? Outdoor concerts, festivals, casinos, nightclubs, having more people, having people over to your home, going to others' homes. Give us a call on the buzz line or send me an email. The email, jill at cknw.com. The buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. 331-2899. We'll be playing some of your comments on that, asking what you're most looking forward to. Coming back. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you know, the heat wave is raising a lot of concerns. It's also exposed a lot of shortcomings when it comes to the public health system and the system that obviously needs some fixing. Let's bring in Guy Felicella now, harm reduction advocate, to talk more about what we're seeing in this heat wave, the overdose numbers and people who are homeless trying to deal with this as well. Guy, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are things going? I know that you often work and you do spend a lot of time in the downtown east side in areas uh, where people uh, are struggling, especially now with the heat wave. How are things going? Well, I think you you, you know you have your um, facilities that provide people with lots of water, and you know I know us at VCH when we were doing the vaccine rollouts in the area. You know we're bringing popsicles and. Um, water and juice for people and um, you know in in some instances it, it works well for people but however I mean if that's the the best that we're doing that's a it's a pretty shortfall in my opinion I, I think you know such traumatic heat uh, really puts a lot of pressure under people's lives I mean it's just like you know surrounded by you know death um, the overdose you know the heat wave i mean it's just uh, it's just another layer of survival for people who are already um presented with so many challenges uh, the overdose numbers were also released 160 people died of an overdose in the month of may what does that number tell us well it tells us we're not doing enough um that's for sure um you know it's just it's heartbreaking to to witness you know month after month um, you know, day after day, it's just so unpredictable. Um, the supply of, of substances that are out there for people, compounded by a heat waves, compounded by being homeless and other uh, underlying health issues. I mean, it's just a disaster of epic proportions. And I, 
I think you need to look at, um, you know, they have modeling for everything. They model COVID and they pre- present action behind the modeling. And then with the overdose crisis, like they, they let the modeling just play itself out. Um, it's just truly heartbreaking for anybody that's um, been involved or works in the in the field of, of harm reduction or trying to, you know, uh, implement services to people who are struggling. I mean, you know, people's mental health are, are severely impacted by it. Just witnessing, you know, on the front lines, there's a difference when you're in the, on the ground and, you know, in some nice luxury office, uh, looking at it, uh, you have a different perspective. And we really know that the urgency is needed, um, to address, you know, the overdose crisis. What do you think it will take, though, to actually address it with, with anything concrete? If we look at COVID, like you, you said, we have modeling. We saw an immediate response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the heat wave, albeit the, the premier had a huge gaffe yesterday when he responded to that, but we are seeing a big response to that now. Uh, but not the same response when we're talking about the overdose crisis. Yeah, I guess, you know, you know, the truth be told is that, uh, you know, not all public health emergencies are looked at the same and, and some lives matter more than others. And, you know, drug users lives don't matter much. And if they did, then they would actually implement some urgent responses to, to show that, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, having this safer supply, you know, fantasy that you hear of um, it's, it's not as, you know, it's easy to say, but not easy to access. And also, too, you have to ask yourself, are these drugs safer if people aren't, aren't using them or accessing them? doesn't make them safer at all if you're still accessing the, the toxic drug supply. We just really have to stop meeting our drug policies where they're at, uh, our bad drug policies, and start meeting um, substance users where they're at so that we can actually save lives. It's not about, like, whether... Um, somebody has an addiction or somebody's just a substance user, you can only get help in this province if you have a substance use disorder. If you don't fall under that and just use drugs, you know, you're pretty much out of luck and you're basically your only choice is the illicit drug supply. And that's why we'll continue to see the majority of people who continue to die of a drug overdose die alone in a private residence just because we just haven't done enough to address it. And it's, you know, it's heartbreaking for, for myself to witness it since um, the early 90s and right up until, until today. It's just, it's very hard to take on some days. All right, Guy, we'll talk to you again. We're out of time today, but thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. You too. That is Guy Felicella, an, a harm reduction advocate. This is Mornings with Simi. Today is a day to listen. A day to hold space for the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Dr. Alika Lafontaine. Dr. Alika is president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association and co-creator of 215 Pledge. He shares how we can use the stages of grief to cope with the devastating announcements of unmarked graves. My name's Alika Lafontaine. I'm an Indigenous physician of Métis, Cree, Anishinaabe and Pacific Islander descent. My great-grandparents were both residential school survivors. A Day to Listen is an opportunity for Canadians to step back and create spaces for voices that often don't get heard in the way that they need to. It's a place for us to consider 
the history that we all share, the parts that we may not always keep in mind, and create space for those stories that, as Canadians, we might forget, but as Indigenous peoples, we've always remembered. A Day to Listen contains stories before investigation of other residential school sites were carried out. And so while we may reference the 215 children in Kamloops Indian residential schools, we did expect and now know that there are many other unmarked graves across Canada. We expect as we go through this day of listening that we may find more sites as we have these discussions. And so our hearts and minds are with all the children in all of the unmarked graves at all these sites across Canada. Truth and reconciliation always begins with truth and ends with reconciliation. And so as you listen to these stories, these lived experiences that you may not have been aware of before now, it's important to listen and really take these as truth, to process as a Canadian what this means for your identity, your history, and what it means for Canada as we build forward. A day to listen and the 215 Pledge acknowledges that the healing process affects everyone who's involved. There's Indigenous families, communities, and individuals who, in the process of uncovering these unmarked graves, are going through a grieving process. But also as Canadians, Canadians will be going through a grieving process as they re-explore their identity and what it means to be Canadian in light of understanding our shared history. The 215 Pledge provides a framework for you to process the grief you're going through. It provides a framework to come together and have these discussions. And in the spirit of what the Downey Winjack Fund has always been about, it creates a space for us both to be prepared to recognize and acknowledge each other's grief, but then move forward towards reconciling our histories. To learn more about the pledge, please visit 215pledge.ca. To continue the conversation about residential schools and our shared history, please visit downywenjack.ca to keep learning. Thank you for joining us on this day to listen. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. These stories may contain details that some listeners may find distressing. If you are Indigenous and in need of support, the Hope for Wellness Crisis Line is available 24 hours a day at 1-855-242-3310 or visit online at hopeforwellness.ca. Today is... A day to listen. A day to hold space for the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Phyllis Webstadt, the creator of Orange Shirt Day, a national movement of remembrance and an affirmation that every child matters. Orange Shirt Day was born out of Phyllis's personal experience and symbolizes resiliency and a way to honor those impacted by residential schools. Wade Hufwede, Phyllis Webstadt, Rensquest. Hello everyone, my name is Phyllis Webstad. I am from the Kenu Creek, Dark Creek First Nation 
I am coming to you today from Shuwem Ulach, the land of the Shushuat people in Williams Lake, BC. I'm third generation Indian residential school survivor. I grew up with my grandmother and when I turned six, it was the thing to do to send me off to residential school. She had sent her 10 children. So in July of 1973, when I turned six, Granny got me ready as well to go to St. Joseph, or we just call it the mission. We went to town here to Williams Lake, and I chose a shiny orange shirt to wear. Got to the mission, and my, my shirt was taken. No matter how much I cried or objected, they wouldn't give my shirt back. And that's where Every Child Matters comes from, is how... I felt when I was there that year at residential school that nobody cared whether us kids were crying, that we were lonely, maybe we were hungry, we were sick, we were sad, and we were five, six-year-olds, and there were no adults there to make things better for us. That's where I learned that my life depended on me, and it's really hard today to ask for help and to accept help even. I'll be turning 54 next month, and it's still hard. I am here, and I get emotional about this, um, because my grandmother survived. That's why we say survivors, because we lived through this. We wear orange September 30th to honor residential school survivors and their families, and to remember those that didn't make it home. The residential school history is not only Indigenous history. This is Canadian history. It's no longer acceptable for Canadians to not know this history. And I'm glad that this history is being taught in schools, starting preschool, elementary, high school, colleges. um, And the children in the schools are going home and talking to their parents about it. So parents are learning I hear people say the discovery of the children in Kamloops and my aunt and others, the families, they've known where the bodies are and it's more of a confirmation than a discovery. So I choose to use that word now instead. Right now, I know the orange shirt is uh, being worn by Indigenous and non-Indigenous people after the confirmation of the 215 children in Kamloops. And I hear orange shirts are going to be worn for Indigenous Day on June 21st and even on July 1st. So it's uh, gone way beyond September 30th. And we chose September 30th because September is the month that the children were taken away. From the very beginning, it's like the whole orange shirt movement, I've heard it called, has been divinely guided. It's like the ancestors are behind this. When I see anyone wearing an orange shirt, what it means to me as a survivor is that you care. It's like a little bit of justice. Many of the people involved in what happened will never go to jail. They'll never be dealt with. And for me as a survivor, before I leave this earth, it's good to know that 
you are learning about this and that you care about what happened to us. So when you're wearing the orange shirt or you see an orange shirt, remember that's what it was meant for, to create conversation and honor residential school survivors and their families and to remember those that never made it home. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Today is a day to listen. Radio stations all across Canada are elevating the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Oreen Askew, also known as DJ Osho. Osho shares her experience growing up on a reserve as an Afro-Indigenous two-spirited person. Hot squile tinoya squahamish aslahan ochumeoch. Oreen Askew, Queen Sna, Chinwa, DJ Osho. My name is Oreen Askew, also known as DJ Osho. I'm Afro-Indigenous and Two-Spirited from the Squamish Nation in Vancouver, British Columbia. Being Afro-Indigenous, I've grown up on the reserve my whole entire life. And if you saw me walking down the street, you would likely assume that I'm just Black, because that's the way I look. And... Lots of conversations are being had right now in the Indigenous communities about the Afro-Indigenous experience, what, it, what it's like to have that happen um, to you, to not, to not to be seen as Indigenous, just to be seen as, as Black. You know, I'll see campaigns and things like that uh, for the Indigenous community. And being an Afro-Indigenous person, you have that thought in your head. You're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's really nice. But like, where, where are the people that look like me? <laughs> you know, like, and, and I felt that I felt that all my life, my whole entire life. And you come kind of numb out that little person speaking. And then what's happening right now is I think our Afro-Indigenous kin are, are just sick of it. So they're speaking up about it. Even with BLM and what's going on with the 215 children, like I've seen posts, I've heard people say kind of comparing tragedies and it really hurts me because I'm I'm from both communities. And that's not the point. Like, who has it worse off? Or, you know, I call it the oppression Olympics. Nobody wins that. Nobody wins the gold medal in that. And I feel like people who can't stand in solidarity, they have trauma because of colonialism and residential schools and intergenerational trauma. Indigenous people sometimes take the side of the oppressor. So they're basically fighting the wrong person. It's really disheartening, and that causes a lot of division in our communities. We shouldn't be fighting each other. We should be getting along. We're family. And I'm really happy that we're having these conversations now, and people aren't afraid to to say it because it's scary. It, it's scary to speak up and say how you feel and be vulnerable. And And with the Indigenous community, it's 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 tough. It's really tough with with colonialism and residential school. It's just like we've been segregated. So I I think it's a really interesting time right now. And I'm glad to be a part of the change. I'm hoping that our people can heal so we can stand together in solidarity, because when we do stand together in solidarity, we are so powerful. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit DowneyWenjack.ca.
www.thepeopleshow.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Today is a day to listen, a day to hold space for the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Harriet Visitor, niece of Chani Wenjak, a 12-year-old boy who died fleeing from a residential school. Harriet shares her personal story, the impact it has had on her and her family, and how she works each day to be a positive change. Bonjour, um, Harriet Visitor and Indishnakas, Makwendo Dem. My name is Harriet Visitor, and I am the niece of the late Chani Wenjak. I sit on the Downey Winjack Fund as a board member, a liaison for my mom and her sisters. As soon as I was born, I was impacted by an unseen brokenness that was brought upon me. And to this day, I am learning to undo and change in myself and my children. I'm an educator and I say that my son is the why I teach, and my daughter has become the how I teach. When the announcement came of the findings of 215 children at the Kamloops Indian Residential School, it totally floored me. I was speechless. I was in pain. And it was so difficult to teach the next day. I couldn't see my students' faces, but I could definitely see their hearts. And it was so hard to teach when I was trying to process what I was feeling myself. I felt the enormity of what my fellow educators across Canada were feeling. And I knew that my students needed to hear me speak about it. And on the first day, I couldn't. And I understand how educators feel in teaching the residential school history. When I've had to share my late uncle Cheney's story in September, Secret Path Week, Orange Shirt Day, the reactions of my students are always heartbreaking for me. When they realize that I'm part of this story, they express sadness. They often come to me. And I acknowledge and I spend time talking to them about our sad history. My Uncle Cheney's story is just one of 150,000 stories. And I tell them I, I understand what our story is. I, I understand and see how painful our story is. But as I look out to my students, I also see our future. And I say that it's my responsibility to walk with you because you're going to continue our story. And I always think about that when I'm teaching whatever I'm teaching my students. But after the, the findings of those children, it became very difficult during that time. There's a long road ahead of us in terms of Canadians learning to understand. That's different from learning. We all learn, but learning to understand is another step beyond just learning. And in our Indigenous families and communities, 
it is a long road to for us to undo and change what has happened to us. As I look out at my students that I teach, I am reminded of my mother on one side and the stories of residential school survivors. And on the other side, I have my students. And I tell them, uh, I know our story is painful. And I call it a story because I tell them, you're going to finish our story. I'm going to walk alongside you in our story for a time, and then I'll leave. But you're going to continue our story. You are our future. Our future. But when I look at our story, I tell them, I know it's painful. I feel the pain. I know you feel the pain too. But when I look out at you, I tell myself, we're strong. We are strong people. We are resilient. Why? Because you're here. You're our future. You're going to continue our story. And I want you to remember that. Remember you come from strong, resilient people. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Today is a day to listen. A day to hold space for the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Thieland Kiknoswe. At just 18 years old, Thieland has spent his life advocating for Indigenous issues. He is completing his seventh annual journey from Winnipeg to Ottawa to raise awareness and funds for missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two spirit people. So hello, my English name is Thieland Kiknaswe. I am Cree and Potawatomi from Wapul Island First Nation, Kajanong Territory. As a young Indigenous youth growing up, I always heard, you know, all these different stories uh, from residential schools, the 60 Scoop, TB sanatoriums, and and now missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, two-spirited individuals. Indigenous women and girls represent 16% of all female homicides in Canada, while constituting only 4% of the female population. Indigenous women are three and a half times more likely to be victims of violent crime than any other women in Canada. Growing up and hearing these, uh, hearing statistics and, and hearing the different tragedies and hearing stories from, from families, sometimes there's moments where you feel like you can't do anything, you feel helpless, but then there's other times when you realize that you have to do something. When I was nine years old, we had this vision to run across Canada to raise awareness for Indigenous, missing and murdered Indigenous women. A little nine-year-old said that to his mom. And um, I, I remember telling her and she was like, what do you mean you want to run across Canada? And, um, you know, I didn't realize Canada was really big at that time. I was eager. I was nine years old. <laughs> and um, I, I knew from, from kind of that moment that we were going to make this dream come true. You know, we started it when I was 11 years old. I'm 18 now. We're in our seventh year and we're, we're still going strong. Unfortunately, the violence hasn't stopped since I was a kid and it still continues today. So, you know, however long that we must run, however long that we must have to continue 
to raise awareness to this this issue and and bring light to this you know we we have to continue to tell people the horrible things that are happening in our communities and outside of our communities i'll continue to share those stories and right now we're on our seventh annual journey for a missing and murdered indigenous women girls and two-spirited individuals we are biking from winnipeg to ottawa but like i said you know from a young age i knew i needed to do something about this you know i didn't i didn't want to just sit around and I had to go out and, and try and make sure that people were hearing this, that they would educate themselves about the issues and epidemics um, around Indigenous peoples. And so with, uh, with different platforms and just using our voice is how we're, we're going to get our message across. So, you know, it, it's not just one person's voice that's going to be able to lead everything, but it takes a community. It takes a collective to do all this work. So if we have everyone's voices in unison, we can, uh, we can sing really loudly to the masses. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. These stories may contain details that some listeners may find distressing. If you are Indigenous and in need of support, the Hope for Wellness Crisis Line is available 24 hours a day at 1-855-242-3310 or visit online at hopeforwellness.ca. Today is... A day to listen. A day to hold space for the voices of Indigenous people in Canada. Like Heather Baer, Vice Chief of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations in Saskatchewan. Heather is a survivor of the Labrette Industrial Residential School and was a day scholar at the Maryvale Residential School, where 751 unmarked graves were recently recovered. My name is Heather Bear. I'm from Ochapois First Nation, from the beautiful, unceded, unsurrendered Treaty 4 territory. And I am a vice chief for the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations. I want to, first of all, acknowledge our heavenly creator today. It's a beautiful day. And with the unearthing and the uh, evidence that has come forward with uh, the little children that went missing so long ago, the little children that went missing that we heard stories about and we say whispers. I'm a survivor of not only a residential school in Labrette, but also I was a day scholar at a residential school uh, in Maryville, where, of course, uh, we all know 751 unmarked graves were discovered. I know there was always stories as a day scholar at Maryville, and when you think about the realities just imagine those children, those babies, and every one of them, they had a name. They were loved. They had families. They weren't just a number. You know, the thought that they had died lonely, they died afraid, they died abused, the way they died, the whole circumstances, it's just so profound in light of everything that's coming. And, you know, that understanding about healing, that we, we don't all heal at the same time. You know, and thinking about where do we go from here now? What is the path forward and why? There's a reason why. Why at this time has this happened? And I can only think about 
the revitalization of our culture. Of course, you know, when you look at the genocides of our people, it was cultural genocide. You know, our language, our culture, our values, our customs, everything good about us was being stripped away. Our descendants that were left back without their children. Can you imagine your town, your city with every child was taken? You know, there's an amazing song called Amazing Grace. I was lost, but now I am found. I think of those little children that they're uncovering. And I think of, I was blind, but now I see. You know, I think of uh, our white brothers and sisters. Uh, 1772, I believe, uh, John Newton, I think was his name. A captain slave trader wrote that song after a miserable storm and he cried unto God. <laughs> a miracle happened and he wrote that song. If he could change they say there is hope. And I think that song does represent hope and humanity for all of people. When we go back to treaty, we made that promise that we would live in harmony with our white brothers and sisters. So that to me is something that is sacred. Those promises were made with a pipe. So the creator is involved. And I'm a strong believer in that. And, uh, I know that there's hope down the road for us. Our uh, white brothers and sisters need to do the work uh, in repairing and doing what you can do to reconcile and reach out because I know there's a lot of you that are traumatized. It's not only First Nations. There's many non-First Nations peoples right now that are crying and feel ashamed and feel hurt. And, you know, what does that say about your history? right? (laughs) And legacy. And that's not a lot to be proud of, but it's not your fault either. But uh, I think we all have a responsibility for, you know, a better world, a better tomorrow. When you look at the whole reason why this happened, it had to do with land, power, and money, and to get rid of the Indian problem. But we're here to stay. And uh, like I say, tomorrow, there's always tomorrow. Today is a day to listen. To learn more about how you can do something, visit downywenjack.ca.